Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now on the financial system of our international economics, no one is better than William Lee at the Milken Institute, his tour of duty uh, at the IMF, and of course, expert on the Pacific Rim as well. I want to do the calculus today, Bill Lee, and of course, we don't do differential equations on Friday. We do simple math. G20, take away G7, I believe is a G13 nobody talks about. How does a G13, Eastern Europe and the rest, how do they observe this G7 meeting? They're anxiously looking at what the G7 is doing with the corporate tax deal that they've come up with. Uh, to say that the smaller countries have to start to raise their tax rates, uh, like uh, Ireland and some of the smaller countries that have developed the model to say, we're going to develop our country by attracting foreign multinationals to our country by lowering our, our corporate tax rate. That is going to go by the wayside because they have to come up to 15%. That's going to be a challenge. Uh, the other thing they're looking at is, how on earth are we going to deal with China and the G7. The G7 already are in a mess in trying to find a way to cooperatively deal with China. Uh, China's a customer. China's a big input into their production uh, supply chain. But but no human rights. Uh, How do we live up to our values of human rights and worker rights? You know, I'm going to believe that Michael Milken, taking advantage of William Lee in employment, dialed 1-800-BILL-LEE and said, Bill Lee, on that tax plan, is it dead on arrival? Every report we see from Hungary from Ireland is major pushback. They want to exempt the city of London, which is absolutely absurd. Is it dead on arrival? Well, it's dead in the sense that no one really uh, agrees uh, firmly that the corporate tax is the best space to use to finance government spending. One of the greatest controversies among economists is who bears the cost of paying the corporate tax? And and studies have ranged from as low as 20 percent workers paying to as much as 100 percent workers paying. And, and, And most studies show at least over 50%. So raising the corporate taxes pushes the burden of paying that tax more on the workers. And that's a very big controversy that that has yet to be settled. And for the G7 to rely on the corporate tax as a base to finance government expenditures is a real political wild card. Well, just to elaborate a little bit, Bill, some people would push back and say, actually, if you look at corporate profits, they've increased dramatically. Why couldn't it come out of that rather than from the workers? I mean, why is that the obvious person who's paying for it? Well, I think the the political movement now is to stay away from taxing workers, especially lower paid workers. And so we want to try to tap into the resources that the very rich have. The question is, is the corporate tax the best vehicle to do that? Because so much of the corporate tax is shifted into consumers, workers, and and people other than the owners of capital. We already know that corporate taxes are unfair in the sense that it's a double taxation. They're taxing the corporate income at the source as well as at the shareholder level in taxing dividends. So, So those questions of incidents have plagued economists for generations, and there's no clear answer. It all is polluted by a lot of politics that, that, that well, govern. Right. So let's, tr- let's try to strip out the politics and use an empirical example. And I'm looking at uh, President Trump's tax cuts. And you'd expect mm. the reverse to be true if that were the case, that a tax cut should juice growth and give more money to the workers. Is that what happened? 
Well, what, what happened with the tax cut with the Trump administration is that so much of the corporate profits that were released went into share share buybacks. Uh, now, the question is, did the share buybacks lead to more investment? If you look at the data um, and the research that I've done, uh, it shows that the share buybacks actually lead to more investment, but there's a huge lag almost as, as long as three to four years before we see that investment take place. <clears throat> right now, we have the highest level of investment uh, in the U.S. For, for many, many years. Bill, one of the biggest problems with um, corporate tax beyond the double taxation issue, which I'm not sure everyone um, has fully wrapped his or her head around, is what companies do to try and avoid it. Often here in the U.S., or here in the U.S., I'm in Berlin, but my home <laughs> in the U.S., um, they, they try and avoid it with debt financing. So we're basically pushing these companies into um, some more uh, risky financing um, solutions does that turn around when you see the tax cut, as Lisa pointed out? Well, one of the things that Mike has always emphasized to me is the corporate capital structure really matters. And pushing people into more debt finance uh, has the impact of changing the shape of investment. Investment now goes into more safe projects because the one thing that debt holders want is to get their money back. They couldn't care less that profits lead to more investments that lead to more productivity. They just want to get their money back. So if you tell a, a borrower, uh, take my money, but make sure you give it back to me. All he's going to do is to invest in the same projects that worked in the past. We're not going to get the innovative investments that we need to drive productivity and raise the standard of living among workers and the rest of the world. Let's talk about the possibility of getting a global minimum tax. We've already heard um, reports that the UK wants to exempt the city of London, and the city of London has a bigger GDP than the Republic of Ireland. If we all start asking for these little loopholes, is it going to be possible to get the kind of blanket global minimum tax that they've set out uh, for in the first place? This is the slippery slope of getting exemptions and loopholes. And this is the one thing that has made the tax system in the United States and the rest of the world fail, which is to create so many loopholes that regardless of what you do with the rate, the amount of revenue you raise is actually much less than anticipated. So, Bill, we're talking about the corporate tax rate, and the backdrop of this is a huge question mark about the trajectory of the global economy, whether we're heading into an inflationary period, whether it's going to be disinflationary post the pandemic boost, uh, boost that we're getting from consumer prices. Where do you stand on this, especially as we see the bond market weigh in and say inflation is not a concern? Well, Lisa, we, I think, are seeing the face of the new shape of inflation in the post-pandemic world, supply-side-induced price jumps. Now, price jumps that clear the market because of supply shortages, to me, is not inflation. It's not regarded as inflation by the Fed or any other central bank. Inflation of the sort that they worry about is the corrosive increase in wages, costs, and prices that firms fail to be able to keep up with, and that, that erode profit margins and, and, and worker and savings and, and, and worker uh, wages. That's kind of corrosive, continuing rise in prices that exceed expectations is the sort of thing that everyone is watching for. But there's no sign that the supply side price jumps, which is not inflation, uh, is going to lead to that corrosive, continuing inflation that we had in the 70s. Uh, Billy, I, I want to end on your wheelhouse, which is the Pacific Rim. Every indication I see is of a pricing for boom. Now, they haven't had the fiscal stimulus the United States of America has, but do you frame out over the next 12, 24, 36 months a Pacific Rim boom? 
I would love to, but the the kind of um, supply side shortage overhang and the overhang of China in the Pacific Rim is really distorting the picture of where growth is going to come from. The Pacific Rim has so much depended upon China as an intermediary and also as a uh, a final demand uh, market that with without China coming online and 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 being a locomotive for the Pacific, it's going to be very difficult for the rest of the countries to grow. Right now, China has a dual strat dual strategy of investing in itself developing its domestic markets and almost withdrawing from the world except in very strategic ways well, the strategic ways is to dominate the supply chain in technology that phrase is so sensitive and so current i mean we could talk to admiral stravitas about it but bill lee to say that china is withdrawing from the world and yet our listeners and viewers are, are, are familiar with the expansion of the south china sea and of the belt and road initiative which is it they're withdrawing their domestic markets from the world because they want to develop their technologies. They're expanding their military and political influence in the world because they want to be recognized as a large country power and, and yet still have the benefits of WTO emerging market status. They want to have their cake and eat it too. And that's the tension that G7 is going to have to deal with. Pairing these two ideas together, this idea of where inflation is going and the fate of China, I'm wondering how much the change in China's economy is going to feature in the world inflation outlook. The idea that China was the factory to the world, it was the low-cost factory, and it was importing disinflation overseas. Now we have a very different China, a lot wealthier, withdrawing liquidity, trying to upgrade itself into developed market status. How much does that reverse the dis disinflationary trend that we've seen? over the past 20 years? That's a great question, Lisa, because we, what we see about the new face of inflation in China is happening right there. The factory prices have gone up by 9%. Uh, and all down the, the supply chain in China, we see more and more price increases. And yet, at the consumer level, we see prices going up at 1.8%. So what we see is a profit margin squeeze because the Chinese don't want to destroy the domestic economy. And they're putting in price controls at the factory level to contain a lot of these commodity price jumps. And I think that's a very successful way that they're implementing to try to limit the follow-through of price jumps and preventing it from spiraling into the corrosive inflation we had in the 70s. Uh, Billy, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. With Michael Milken and the Milken Institute, their chief economist. Right now on G7 and on these markets, it is thrilling to give you your beach reading for the summer. It's not a secret that my book of the summer is 2034. It is by Elliot Ackerman and James Stravitas. It is absolutely stunning. This is a scary dangerous book. It, it, it reeks of a Netflix movie, and maybe we'll see that. Not your usual expectation from Admiral Stavitas, but there it is. It is a triumph. The author joins us this morning, the former NATO commander. James Stavitas, I want to go to the work of Richard Haas in his wonderful The World, and particularly John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, and it's your fault. They suggest, with respect, that the G7 world and that the NATO countries overreached and expanded too far east too quickly for Mr. Putin and Russia. Did NATO in Europe overreach to pick up Eastern European countries? I don't think so. It's always easy in hindsight to say, hey, we could have, we would have, we should have done something differently. Um, but if I could rewind the clock to the days when the, when the wall fell, you got to remember the zeitgeist of the moment. 
there, there were not NATO tanks rolling into Prague. Uh, there were not NATO aircraft flying over Warsaw. Those countries were begging to join NATO. And they wanted to join NATO because they'd been under the boot of the Soviet Union. I don't see in a real world where we could have just said, no, you stay over there. We would have delivered them back to Russia. Would have been a bad moment, in my view. Long ago and far away, Admiral King and his gentlemen with their courage, uh, folks, the Tom Hanks movie of this year on the courage of the Navy across the North Atlantic in 1941. James Trevitas, they got together off, I believe, Newfoundland and did the Atlantic Charter. Now we have the politicians with the TV moment doing a new Atlantic Charter. Is there any substance to this new Atlantic Charter? I don't think there's anything new in the new Atlantic Charter, but that's okay. What it reaffirms is this transatlantic bridge that, frankly, has been a little creaky for the last four years. Now it's uh, gaining strength, gaining airspeed. And I think in this post-Brexit moment, it makes geopolitical sense to kind of draw a line under that relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom. I'll close, Tom, by saying, even as we're having this conversation, what ship is at sea? the 65,000-ton aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth with British escorts, British submarines, British auxiliary ships. We would call that a carrier strike group, and it's headed to the Indian Ocean and into the South China Sea. They're a good ally to have. Uh, James Trevitas, in your book, 2034, folks, and I'm going to be honest, it's so damn good, I'm going to be very careful here not to give it away, but the heart and soul of 2034 in our modern technology is a lack of communication. It starts in that opening scene in the South China Sea. How does this G7 set up a communication process to avoid your 2034? Um, first and foremost, it's about cyber and cybersecurity and protecting our networks. And by the way, protecting undersea cables as well. That comes up in the book. It, it's this uh, putting together the technologies of cyber, of space, of undersea control. All of that has to be protected. That's a job not just for NATO, because NATO's in the end a regional alliance. That's a job for all the democracies. I think that's going to be a significant part of the conversation today in Cornwall. Admiral Stavridis, there's a question about the alliance and how strong it is in coming up with a strategy uh, with respect to China. Uh, there is, a, as we get the arrivals at the G7, we have Angela Merkel, German Chancellor, arriving. And Germany has an incredible trade partnership with China, even as it does take a harder stance. How much of a consensus is there on the right approach for the allies versus China in terms of reconfiguring trade? I think that's the through line for G7 to NATO. Um, and, and in fact, the Atlantic Charter is all part of this. And one central element to this, Lisa, that you'll be well aware of are the Chinese claims of territorial ownership in the South China Sea. We are pushing back on that by driving our ships through those international waters. That's a set piece that opens 2034. In the uh, today's world, the Brits are headed there. The French are doing it. The Germans have pledged to send a ship there to stand with us. A lot of it derives from concern about human rights, but also your point about trade and access to Chinese <clears throat> markets. Um, I think there's going to be a 
continuous conversation about China and Western China relations that run from geopolitics to geoeconomics to mercantile to market access. How good of a job has the Western world done at vaccine diplomacy, at shoring up support uh, from regions near the South China Sea in their outreach to try to help us all get out of the pandemic versus China, which has been more aggressive or at least aggressive uh, on a PR stance about their efforts on that front? Yeah, this is a reflection of the clever, capable Chinese strategy. One Belt, One Road, or sometimes called the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. It's a clever strategy that um, seeks to engage China geoeconomically in a mercantile fashion, and vaccines have become part of that. That's why the president's announcement of 500 million doses, no strings attached, Pfizer, gold standard coming from the United States, uh, that's a big deal. And it kind of wraps together, if you will, the three C's of the G7. That's COVID, China, and cyber. We've now hit all three of those. Uh, Admiral Stravitas, Angela Merkel is about ready to descend upon her last G7 meeting at 66 years old. She is esteemed and venerated. She is a quantum chemist from Eastern Germany. What has been her chemistry, her impact on the Western world, your tour of duty at NATO, and after that? I met with the chancellor many, many times, and honestly, there is no leader that I would put above her in terms of her integrity, her willingness to make hard decisions. Germany, a nation of 80 million, took in a million refugees from Syria. The United States took in less than 20,000. She made the hard political choices. She's a four-term chancellor. She's like FDR, elected four times mm -hmm. to office. Uh, I, I cannot say enough good about Angela Merkel. I hope she does not go gently into that good night back to a physics lab somewhere, and I don't think she will. Yeah. She's got my vote to be the Secretary well, General of the United Nations. Well, there you go. To do so. Stravitas working on the resume for Merkel. Uh, <laughs> Matt Miller is in Berlin, and of course she celebrates a political domestic victory, Matt, in the recent days. In recent days, but you know, those polls come and those polls go. I think um, the Admiral's point is an interesting one. Merkel would make a great secretary general. When I attended the G20 meeting in Hamburg, she got a standing ovation from all of the other leaders when she em entered the, uh, the, the, the opera hall there um, at the end of the meeting. She essentially was leading the G20, and it'll be interesting to see what she can do here at the G7. To me, Admiral, the interesting, um, the most interesting thing about Merkel is all of the uh, all of the good deeds she's done. You just listed, and yet she is so insistent on building this Nord Stream two pipeline to Russia, essentially funding you know billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to Vladimir Putin um, to finance things like the annexation of Crimea. Why? I think it would be hard to find any leader who bats a thousand. In other words, uh, I think all of us can look at any of our leaders and say, hey, you got this one wrong, you got that one wrong. To, to the pipeline question, Merkel, I would say to her chancellor, you got that one wrong. And um, it, it reflects her, her, sometimes our greatest strength can be our greatest weakness. Um, and in, in mm -hmm. many ways, she wants to build consensus. She wants to pull Russia to the West. There's 
a strategic sense to that, but it won't work with Vladimir Putin. Therefore, I would score her uh, less perfect on that particular point. Admiral Stravitas, have you framed out Russia after Putin? I guess none of us are doing that. Merkel is thinking forward always, as you say, the chancellor and others. What does Russia look like pulled to the West after Putin? Let's hope it happens. And if you look at the history of Russia, in terms of leaders, you roll the cosmic dice. Sometimes you get Peter the Great. The next time you get Ivan the Terrible. You get a Joseph mm -hmm. Stalin. Then you get a Gorbachev. Those dice landed on Vladimir Putin. He will be the czar of all the Russians till the day he dies. He's alive in 2034 as an octogenarian. But what comes afterward, let's hope the dice land on a different kind of leader. It's possible if you look at Russian history, the strategic opening to pull Russia right. away from China is a powerful moment for the West. It won't come until Vladimir Putin passes on to the great commune in the mm. sky. James Trevitas, thank you so much for joining us this morning, folks. to get all the answers to the bond market mystery. Subhadra Japa has them all. She's standing by. So Siete General, head of U.S. rate strategy. And there is this question of what has been behind the incredible rally in 10-year treasuries. I was saying a lot of people are attributing it to a short squeeze. Is that it? Well, I think it's one of many factors, right? We're definitely seeing a little bit of positioning being very skewed. Uh, towards shorts. And typically when you see, uh, uh, you know, when position gets a little bit skewed, you tend to see a, a short covering rally. But it's also, you're seeing very, very strong demand coming from, you know, real money accounts, overseas accounts in auctions this week. If you look at the auction metrics, both indirects as well as directs, you know, the participation has been very, very strong. So the primary dealers are not taking down these auctions. It's real money investors and end investors that are taking down this auction. So it's a combination of positioning as well as strong demand from end investors for treasuries, which I think is kind of counterintuitive. Like you pointed out, at this stage in the recovery, you shouldn't be expecting a gradual rise in yields. So in some respects, the sort of rally that we've seen in the last week, at least to me, is somewhat counterintuitive. So that really raises the question, how much does this rally have legs or is this a one off, a sort of positional shakeout that's poised to reverse? Uh, I think I'm, I'm more in the camp that, you know, once we get this position shakeout, we should see, uh, you know, yields start to head ever so gradually towards, uh, you know, a higher trajectory. And in some respects, where we are right now is very similar to what we saw earlier on this year. You know, when 10 year yields were at 80 or 90 basis points when we began the year, we thought the world would come to an end when 10 yields got to 125. The Fed's definitely going to, you know, talk down the market. They're not going to let yields rise to 125. Guess what? The Fed just stepped aside and said, you know what? It's okay for yields to rise. We're exactly at that same juncture heading into the June meeting where 10 yields are at 145. The Fed is gradually thinking about pairing back asset purchases. They're going to look at 10s at 145 equities at all time highs and say, you know what? We have a little bit more room to sound a little bit more hawkish on the market. And if yields rise, so, rise, so what? 
you know, there's a lot more room for yields yeah. to rise. So that's kind of where I, you know, I think the big risk heading into next week is that there's a, li- there's a decent amount of complacency in the bond market that the Fed's going to keep things status quo. Well, talk a little bit more about the complacency and I guess the potential here, Sabadra, uh, for volatility. Should we finally start to get a little bit clearer communication about the Fed? Because while they may be standing pat right now, I mean, they've also made it clear that at some point things are going up and we're going to get that communication, some sort of roadmap, hopefully soon. And I'm wondering, as we start to drift lower here, whether that just sets us up uh, for a more volatile spike higher at some point soon. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that there's, I think the summer itself is going to be somewhat more volatile. It's not just Fed communication that could spur volatility from here on. It's also the data. If there's anything we've learned in the last couple of months, it's that you can't just turn on a switch and have the economy come back online. There's just a lot of bottlenecks that need to be ironed out. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's data that we're going to get that that uh, you know we don't know the trajectory for employment is is a, it turns out to be a lot slower than what we were anticipating. It's not going to be a million dollar jobs per month. Uh, so you know, at least till till we get through the third second quarter and third quarter. I think we're going to see a little bit of volatility in the, the data. And the Fed is long overdue, I would say, in my opinion, to start thinking about uh, tapering asset purchases and communicating those intentions. And I think that those mm-hmm. intentions are going to start getting communicated as early as next week. On a strategy basis, Sabrata, with where we are, what do CFOs do? Do you look, I mean, is the great unspoken here there's going to be a wall of bond issuance coming out in the next six months? I mean, I've lost track of you know, what the corporations are actually going to do. Are they going to pile on more debt? Yeah, I mean, I think if interest rates are low, that's what you should be doing, right? Borrowing as much as you can. As, yeah. And, you know, there's there's a, definitely a case to be made. And it's already happened. I mean, a good portion <clears> of this year, we've seen you know tremendous amounts of corporate bond issuance. What's really interesting is the amount of demand that's been from end investors for all this issuance. That's coming to the market. I mean, whether it be investment grade or high yield, yeah. I mean, spreads are extraordinarily tight. Yeah. Well, so, you know, and this demand continues. Subhadra, that's where I wanted to go. This idea that high yield bonds are now yielding one basis point away from the lowest ever, sub 4%. We're looking at 3.89% on high yield bonds. And the record sales pace has been absolutely blow your socks off. I mean, basically, that's a CFA term, Tom. There is a question about the moral hazard here. The idea of the complacency of a low rate regime here on out, tied with companies selling bonds to raise money to buy Bitcoin, like the MicroStrategy bond, to raise money to pay dividends, to pay money to the private equity ownership. At what point does this become a problem or are we in a never ending uh, cycle of ever lower yields? So I was listening to Romain earlier on and he was saying at some point there's going to be a correction. So I'm kind of in that same camp that, you know, things do get a little bit out of hand, and then you're going to see some sort of, of a correction. And for that to happen, it's going to come from a change in the policy stance. Right now, you know, the Fed's, you know, keeping its asset purchases. At some point when they start tapering asset purchases, these real yields that you're seeing at negative 92 basis points, a negative 1%, are going to have to move higher. And guess what? When, when real yields start moving higher in a steady, systematic way because the Fed's trying to remove accommodation, this is going to have an impact on on risky assets. So we're we're not there yet. It's really hard to time this, 
But definitely, that's a, that, mm-hmm. that's a risk in in the horizon. Sabrata, thank you so much, Sharp. Sabrata uh, Rajapa there from Societe Generale on uh, U.S. rates and the derivative heritage of Sakjen there on the dynamics of these rates and the major dynamic has been shock and awe uh, here. great hallmarks of securities research is how you read the research. And one of the, you know, I, I've literally, I do lectures on this, folks. You get a four-page report, and there's a way to read it in 22 seconds and get what's <laughs> out of it. And then there's the 15-page report, and you do that. And then there's Paul from our youth. This goes way back. Yep. The reports from Kidder Peabody. Oh, the best. Where you go, yeah. damn, I've got to read this whole thing. It was Joe Amato's fault. It, it was, was his Joe, fault. It was Joe Amato's fault. It was like fault. that. And he went through a storied career in securities research. And I would suggest the integrity of it. It wasn't about buy, hold, sell. It was about inform you about where the company fit in within the sector yep. in terms of growth and valuation. And there was an Amato heritage there, heritage there all the way up to Lehman Brothers. And, and Tom, I first bumped into Joe Amato when I was a young analyst. I interviewed when he was a director of research at Lehman Brothers for a media research analyst position. And boy, the team he, he had, said no. He I probably said so. no. It was a, it was fun. We had a we had a good discussion. He had a great team there. Joe, thanks so much for joining us here. Joe Amato, he's a Newberger Berman president and chief investment officer. Um, Joe, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, you've had such a storied career. You've seen it all. What are you telling your clients here as they think about, boy, I got a global reopening of this economy like we've never seen before. What do I do? Well, good morning and uh, thanks for having me and thanks uh, certainly for those kind words. uh, well, we are, are certainly uh, uh, constructive on the outlook, and we're in, you know, we're talking with clients about the strength of the global uh, growth recovery that is clearly in, in in full swing, and how to position oneself for that. Uh, certainly, uh, talking through the inflation risks and the rate outlook, all that are quite relevant to how one looks at uh, you know an asset allocation across the board, whether it be in equities or fixed income or, or what have you. But but uh, bottom line is we're you know we're constructive on risk assets. We see the outlook uh, is uh, a positive one. We're probably going to achieve record earnings. I know lots of folks have been talking about achieving record uh, levels in equity valuations right now, but uh, you're also going to see equity uh, earnings uh, um, at record levels. So, Joe, you know, coming out of the financial crisis, um, you know, the, the, the great bull market coming out of the financial crisis was driven in large part by these big tech growth stocks that worked so well uh, for most investors, yet we've seen a nice rotation into more cyclical uh, kind of sectors of this economy. I'm thinking uh, energy, financials. Where do you guys see the performance coming from over the next 12 to 24 months? Well, right now, we're, we're definitely positive toward uh, the value sector, the cyclical sector. We think there's more legs to the economic recovery here that you can position oneself for to take advantage uh, of it in that in that time frame that you're that you're talking about. Uh, it's we're going to see economic growth levels, GDP levels that we haven't seen in a long, long time. And uh, I think you want to be positioned for that. And during periods of accelerating economic activity, mm-hmm. you want to be positioned in cyclicals and, and, and value stocks, and that's what you've seen has been working. As you think beyond that time frame, uh, 
uh, one debate we certainly have internally is what level of sustainable sort of trend line growth you're going to see out two, three years from now. And we do think the growth is going to slow down. And during that period of slowdown, you typically will rotate back into your secular growers. I don't think it's time for that yet, but it is something that you know we're thinking about as we as we position position portfolios for for long term um, uh, investment. Joe Mata, you guys are very sophisticated uh, investors. I think of Charles Cantor and his leadership uh, in the equity markets, and many many others at Newberger uh, Berman. I want you to talk to what our listeners are living which is active-passive, mm -hmm. the the ginormous success of passive. Joe, ginormous is CFA word in case you're not <laughs> familiar with that. But, but passive has taken over. State the case for active Charles Cantor-like management in securities research where there's no money in it for the street anymore. Six cents used to be big living. It's gone. Tell me how we move forward doing active research. We still certainly believe that there are real benefits that will enhance uh, ultimately returns by doing good bottom-up fundamental research. And there are, there are still, in our view, even in markets like large cap US, which often, as I describe, is ground zero for the active-passive debate, right. uh, even in that market, there are pockets of inefficiency that you could take advantage of. The challenge active managers have had is when that handful of, whether you want to call it FANG or just super large cap stocks, do well, it's very hard for an active manager to outperform because very few active managers are going to be way overweight five stocks that represent 30% of the index. But but as you see in small cap land, in right. non-U.S. world, emerging markets world, active managers actually have had a more sustained level of uh, of performance relative to indices, and and so you know we we don't just look at large cap U.S. Right. That's been tough. It's been better recently because as the Fang stocks have slowed down a bit, it's given opportunity for active managers to show to show their wares. And and the other point I would make is in engaging companies and acting like active owners and real shareholders because as you know Tom we invest for the you know the long term we're not we're not yeah. a high frequency Six trader weeks. if you will <laughs> <laughs> no no no, no. Um, uh, you know that engaging yeah. companies being uh, responsible owners whether it be capital allocation decisions uh, the board makeup, compensation, the alignment of the senior executives are all important things that I think active managers right. bring an enormous amount to the table. What about diverse, diversification? Or as Peter Lynch would say, diversification. I mean, if in this milieu, in this oddity of, I don't know where the risk-free rate is, maybe you know, but I, I don't. Are, are, do you approach this less diversified or more diversified than what we were trained as? Well, if I would I would think about in components, if you're thinking just intra equities, uh, I think it pays to be diversified. If you look at the powerful swings that are nearly impossible to predict in the short term, right? The rotation uh, between growth and value, small and large, U.S. non-U.S. Those were enormous alpha generators if you mm -hmm. timed it right. But timing it is nearly impossible. Uh, in the short term. So so diversifying across those levels for those investors who came into the new year with very little value exposure, they've really suffered because value has dramatically outperformed yep. growth, just like the reverse occurred back in 
2020. As you move across asset classes, equity fixed income, you do start to question the benefits of that 60-40 traditional uh, type diversification because your bonds in the past gave you good uh, ballast, if you will, versus your equity risk. Yeah. And now it feels like you get less of that. Yeah, the new 60-40 poll is 60% Amazon, 40% Apple. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, Joe, you know, I'm going to ask you to put your uh, director of research hat on from years ago. How do research analysts do their jobs these days in the world of a pandemic? I used to be on the road Great all question. the time visiting oh, my go. companies. Oh, yeah, God, the Ritz. You know, exactly. Oh, no, two nights But mine the was Ritz going to the uh, the theme park at Disney World. I used World. to play golf. <laughs> exactly. So, Joe, how, do you, how are the analysts at Newburgh Berman kind of doing their jobs and adapting here? Well, certainly the uh, inability to, to go kick tires, visit manufacturing facilities, meet companies in their offices, what have you, have, have uh, been dramatically affected by, you know, the last 15 months or so. Uh, the availability of company managements to talk, whether it be through a video conference or a phone call or what have you, has certainly gone up because they're just more available. Uh, but you don't right. necessarily get the same uh, interaction in that in that forum. One of the things that, that I think is enhanced fundamental analytical uh, rigor is data science. So we've invested a lot in uh, evaluating alternative data sets using the processing power that is available today to look at ways that in the past, whether it be my early days as an analyst or others, you just didn't have access to really, really interesting, insightful data. And now that I think gives gives lots yeah. of our team a, a big edge. Charles Cantor still has a slide rule on his desk. <laughs> Joe Amato, thank you so much. Joe Amato, one of the legends of the business, thrilled he's with yeah. us today. Uh, Chief Investment Officer, Equities, Newberger Berman. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.